This is the history of professional wrestling. Part 1. Origins. What if history? And more importantly, what if the history of professional wrestling? Before the McMahons, before the Rhodes, hell, even before Okada, there was a time when pro wrestling was not so sleek in its presentation. These were the before times. Pre-Pyro. Wrestling began in Germany in the mid-19th century, when traveling showmen would hire a strongman, offering local scallywags the opportunity to knock their blocks off. And if they did, they'd receive 300 marks and a hot sausage supper. These strongmen were given nicknames to help with the promotion and branding. Names such as Alfred, the Raging Ox Bastard, or Edvard, the Bavarian Mandog, or even Otto, the Plump. They were promoted as athletes by the showmen and traveled from town to town, grappling in front of crowds as small as ten, and as large as more than ten. Eventually, the showmen stopped having the strongmen bash members of the public to bits. As one strongman, Johann, the reasonably priced butcher, caused permanent brain damage to roughly 20% of the male population of Miltenberg, which crippled both the economy and the poor gents who stepped up to the 6 foot 2 inch Johann, which was absolutely massive back then. One showman, an American by the name of Roderick Dowling, had the idea to make the strongmen fight each other. And the rest, as they say, is history. Which I will now explain to you in some detail. The year is 1898. The city is Chicago, Illinois. The time is around a quarter past five on a pretty balmy Sunday. A crowd gathers to watch the catcher's catch can't scrap between Paul, the angry lighthouse keeper, and Jack, the placid lighthouse keeper. It was the turn of the century and was a common and noble profession. The crowds watched in wonder as the two men locked up and grappled atop a pigskin mat. There were no ring posts or ropes as they simply hadn't been invented yet. Paul came out on top, likely due to his pent-up anger, wowing crowds by finishing Jack with a breathtaking inverted phoenix splash. It was over a century before this move was ever used again, as Paul landed both on top of Jack and the very tip of his own spinal column. Paul may have won the match, but sadly, that day, he lost his life. Paul will always be remembered as the man who won the first sanctioned professional wrestling match, and as the surly keeper of the flame atop the great lighthouse of the Chicago Harbor.
Without men like Paul, many of our precious ships would never have made it to port. Ships carrying meat from England, beer from the old country, and flamboyant wigs from France. As I stand here and watch the lighting of the Great Flame, which today involves the flicking of a switch and protrusion of a 10,000-watt beam across a salty sea, I'm reminded of Paul and his bravery, and I'm left to wonder, did he practice his inverted phoenix splash by jumping from this very tower into the ocean below? And if so, why didn't he practice more? Hey, that's my hat, you feathery This is the history of professional wrestling. Part two, beginnings. By the late 19-teens, where it had once proudly waxed, wrestling began to wane in popularity. This was largely due to the retirement of many superstar strongmen, due to broken bones and what we today know as mushy sad brain. But also, Lincoln Logs had just been invented. And when it comes to captivating a young audience, how do you compete with those lovable logs? However, the sport was not entirely without hope. In the early 1920s, a group of wrestlers decided to start their own promotion, ECW. No, not that one. This was ever so cracking wrestling. The three founders of ECW were Ted Carbon Neutral, Willie V, and Boots Fancy, who, perhaps, was the most popular of the group. Together, they were known as the Stardust Trio, as they had all quit working for major promoters when they had asked the wrestlers to wear a silly outfit and pretend to be from space. You must understand, the year was 1921, and both Russia and the United States were racing to Jupiter. Therefore, alien characters were very popular. They brought a new style of wrestling to music halls, armories, and indeed, other places. In contrast to the high work rate, flippy, and holy shit style that was displayed the decade prior, the Stardust Trio opted for a no-holds form of professional wrestling. Competitors would make their way to the ring and yell insults at each other for 20, 30, 40, even 50 hours. Then, a referee and a panel of celebrity judges would declare a victor. This could sometimes take weeks to decide. Fans were happy to wait, of course, as there wasn't much to do in the mid-1920s. For context, MySpace was still six years away. This filibuster fighting became must-see action, but due to the nature of the scraps, it became must-hear action too. Very few pure spools of audio remain to this day, as most were lost to the ravages of time, and also a very big fire. However, one match 
a main event between Willie V and Boots Fancy remains. Well, I must say, good fellow, your boots are looking rather tattered. You can talk about my shirt, my pants, hell, even my soggy cotton bottoms, but never, sir, never my boots. Well, I, uh, I just did, so what are you going to do about it? You sit there in your ivory tower talking about my boots. Well, that's a safe place. A safe place from which to insult a man's footwear, a man's livelihood. These are hard times. A man's got to work for his boots. Sir, I'm betting you've never set one of those dainty British feet on a Lincoln Log factory floor. Not in your entire life, sir. That's why I need my boots, sir. To make Lincoln Logs for hard-working families to enjoy. I don't hate you, sir. I don't even dislike you. I just hate the idea that you're the best at making Lincoln Logs. You're not. I am. I'm the best at making Lincoln Logs. Some diligent fans may recognize a few lines from Boots's speech. Yes, they were in fact used in commercials for Lincoln Logs until the mid-1970s. I'm here at the Lincoln Log Factory in Nova Scotia, Canada, where over 50,000 plastic logs are made every day. Over half of them are deemed unfit for purpose and are simply tossed at nearby wildlife. Those brave seals. I'm here with one of the factory's noble workers. Tell me, do you enjoy working at the Lincoln Log Factory? Yep. And do you remember the rich history between Lincoln Logs and professional wrestling? Nope. And there you have it. The first promotion founded by wrestlers happened as early as the 1920s. But even they could not compete with America's favorite sturdy log. As I finish editing this part of the documentary, I've left the microphone on to record my final thoughts. I can't help but think about the declining television ratings of today's wrestling, and wonder what would happen if they stopped trying so blatantly to compete with Lincoln Logs, and instead once again embrace the entertainment value of the mighty log. Hashtag embrace the log. 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 This is the history of professional wrestling, part three, Inceptions. Prior to the Second World War, Wrestling was dying. Then, a right-wing totalitarian despot named... Well, you all know who I'm talking about. Incidentally, that man failed to make it in the sport of kings. As a wrestler named Adolf Ziegler. To think, had he managed to win wrestling crowds over, 
perhaps history would be very different. After the violent defeat of the biggest villain of all time, audiences clambered to see similar action in the squared circle. However, the business was shot to tatters. Many brave men had died fighting Adolf Ziegler, and many greedy promoters who had refused to fight due to a self-invented rich man bone disease had taken their purses to South America. In 1948, the remaining promotions decided to group together and form a loose connection, known as the NWC, which we all know as the National Wrestling Coalition. Not to be confused with my favorite hip-hop group, N-Words with Concerns. This became known as the Territory System. Each promotion was given its own land to grapple in. A man could lace up his boots in Atlanta, Idaho, and then be grappling for the title in Poughkeepsie, Vancouver, before the next beaver migration. It was a golden era for wrestling, with athletes and promoters working together in harmony as just three stabbings per year was actually rather tame for the 1950s. You may have even heard of some of the superstar hot-ticket names from this era. They included Killer Kolash, the first vegan deemed fit enough to fight, Handsome Harry. His act would be something of a hate crime now, but at the time it was very progressive. And Lou Thex, perhaps the biggest name and the champion all promotions wanted. He was something of a prom queen, as he had promoters courting him around the clock. Although he didn't look like a prom queen, no, that was Handsome Harry's business. These unions coexisted in relative peace, sharing champions, wrestlers, and knowledge across North America. That was until a right-wing totalitarian despot named, well, you know who I'm talking about. But it wasn't just North America taking the wrestling world by storm. It would be a disservice to not cover the rise of professional wrestling the world over. So, let's look at what was going on in the ever-cosmopolitan United Kingdom. Coming up next on BBC's Sports Hour, it's badger baiting with the landed gentry. But for now, back to the wrestling. Well, that was an excellent bout we just witnessed. Sir Maddo of Jaro defeating Hugh. Five falls to half a sixpence. Now it's over to Mae West, standing by with everyone's favourite Yorkshireman, Dick Humber. Dick, you're up next. Any words for your opponent? He's a bastard. They're all bastards. Each and every one of you at home, you're bastards. You, miss, you're a bastard. That old lady in front row, she's a bastard. Just get me the bastard ring. Let's get the bastard wrestling. Back then, it was legal to curse in broadcast media. Compare this to modern times, where I can call your dad a stupid c**-sucking and a robot will simply remove the inappropriate words. I think you'll all agree, humbers speech would simply not carry the same weight with such censorship. The true superstars of the British scene were Large Papa and Giant Barleywater. Both athletes kept wrestling well into their 80s, and, sadly, both men died of a heart attack in the middle of the ring. During the same match, against each other, 
They landed in sort of a heap on top of one. It was, it was tragic. Wrestling remained on British screens until the mid-1980s, until American greed reached out its grease-stained palms and changed the direction of the sport forever. Which brings us to the present day, our times, post-pyro. The age influenced by this right-wing suit wearer. An age of business numbers, TV ratings, and celebrity personalities. What I've learned on the journey this documentary has taken me on is that we've forgotten what this sport is truly about. Bashing heads in, conning people out of coin, and moving on to the next town before anyone's the wiser. And what's next for wrestling, I hear you ask. Or at least, I hope you did, because that's what this final bit is about. Maybe robots? VR cyber fights? Perhaps you ingest a pill that makes you, the viewer, experience deep violence in the tiniest pockets of your inner cortex. Who can say? What I can say, though, with such a high degree of certainty, is that this is the end of the documentary. Goodbye.